You're listening to Curators of Culture with Tina Ziegler, a podcast brought to you by Monica Culture and supported by the Monica Foundation. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Hello, welcome back to Curators of Culture. On this podcast, we speak with some of today's leading curators from the urban and new contemporary art movement. This podcast is supported by Monica Foundation. For today's podcast, we are joined by Jasper Wong, a man who wears many hats in the urban and contemporary art market. Jasper is an artist, illustrator, curator, art director, alongside being a full-time father to two. He is well known as a successful artist for his unique style, as he describes it, a clash of Asian-influenced pop culture on paper, and for his role as the curator and lead director of Pow Wow Worldwide. It's a nonprofit organization and mural festival, which I'm sure is known by many of the people listening today, and it really was created to and committed to community enrichment to the creation of art and outreach programs. It was formed in 2010. The festival has gone global and has accumulated a huge following and has since exhibited in 17 cities worldwide with the purpose of city beautification and community building. Jasper is a highly respected member of the urban and contemporary art movement, and we are extremely honored to welcome him, dialing in all the way from his home in Hawaii. Welcome, Jasper, and good morning. Good morning, or good evening to you guys out there on the opposite side of the world. I know, we have a big time difference between us, so I appreciate you joining us very bright and early, and I just think we uh, we dive straight in. So, can you give us a little start with uh, what your world looks like today? What do you, what does the day of Jasper look like ahead? Well, it's been kind of a, an interesting past couple of weeks because our exhibition at the Bishop Museum here closed recently. So we're in this process of, of taking it all down, which is always a very sad affair, having <laughs> to see all the work that you put into an exhibition have to be sort of uh, removed. And we also did a lot of murals within there. So those obviously then get destroyed because they were on the walls of the museum. Or, and right, so they, yeah. had, they get painted over. And so, you know, at the end of the day, art on the streets, as we've been doing it over the years, and graffiti, culture, like the work is ephemeral, which also makes it very beautiful, but it's still sad to watch it all go. So I've been doing that and having to ship all the work um, back to artists, which also ends up being a whole ordeal, just lugging work to, to freighters and, and shipping it all out and seeing it all go. So, you know, so that's what I've been up to. Uh, I'll continue doing that work today uh, amongst other projects that I'm that I'm currently working on yeah no it is it's kind of that sad moment of just watching all that hard work come down I mean but the show has been up for quite a while no it was wasn't it from the show that you guys had in February no it was um it opened in May oh in May so it sorry. ran yeah so it ran through the summer it's about it ran for about four months so it's a good run um yeah. and yeah and but it also feels like it came by really quickly, but that's how it always feels. But, you know, at the end of the day, we've been wanting to put together an exhibition of this nature for like years. And we kept getting rejected by other museums. And this isn't our first museum exhibition. We've done others alongside Andrew Hosner of ThinkSpace, who was also on your on this podcast. Yeah, he, but, when we were speaking to him, he was preparing to come see you and, <laughs> for the show. So it yeah, was right before Yeah, because we had to hang... Yeah. We had to hang 120 paintings with him when he arrived. Oh, it, was a, it was definitely a stressful time. We're like, okay, we need to hang all this. 
and we have two days to do it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, the two of you together, I'm sure, so, can so achieve we finally anything, got it. Okay. So. We've been working together for a long yeah. time, so we know each other really well, and our and our and our working habits. It's just, I think the the one thing that kind of made it difficult, and the one thing that I learned more than anything is never plan an exhibition during a pandemic. I'll never do that again. Well, hopefully, you won't that have to. That, <laughs> yeah, that was that was really hard. Like I didn't I didn't expect it to be, but just like just having I've never had to be as flexible just because like you would have artists confirmed and things will suddenly shift at a drop of a hat due to new travel restrictions and and even like Hawaii was more strict in terms of travelers coming in too. Um and then they introduced coming in with the vaccine after we already opened the show. And so there's a lot of things to consider and we all constantly had to make changes even up to the opening and also, you know, yeah. shipping was more expensive. There was supply shortages. Um, even trying to get spray paint was, was difficult because turns out uh, spray paint had a really amazing year in 2020 and there's a big shortage globally. And so yeah. all the colors aren't available. So all the artists had to sort of like make adjustments. So it was a, it was a very sort of like things that normally what's, would be easy to put together was particularly difficult just due to all the after effects of yeah yeah i can understand that i mean do you feel like it it seems like it was worth it though because you were doing something that you know during that time one it probably seemed impossible to a lot of people to achieve what you guys did but two i think a lot of people needed what you delivered did you feel that was was the response different to previous festivals during the pandemic? Yeah, I think so. I would say so, yeah. I would say it definitely felt different because for a lot of the artists, especially the ones that flew in to install and paint and be at the exhibition during that period, during the opening, a lot of them haven't did not travel for at least a year prior or a year and a half prior. And so, and, and maybe they were stuck in lockdowns the entire time. And so for a lot of them, it was their first time seeing a lot of their peers and painting together and creating together something that that they haven't been doing and so it was special for for a lot of us in that regard because that was the same for me like i haven't before that period i hadn't seen anyone since the last festival that we threw in hawaii yeah and and so it and, and it was one of the the first sort of events larger events that were thrown yeah legally in hawaii since then um you know granted there's a bunch of like big illegal parties that have that were happening um, but this was the first one, and then, and then, but obviously at the same time, I also provided a lot of anxiety for myself at the same time because I really didn't want to become a super spreader event, and that was definitely a concern. And so we tried to make sure that it was as safe as possible for everyone, um, and it did. You know, we we didn't have we didn't create any cases, but it, you know that was something new that we, that we had to think about with events because that's something that you don't think about. You know, it's like oh, you know, you're gonna, mostly our concern in the past was I hope there's a good turnout. Hope there's like a lot of people that come to this event, and this was like, oh, I hope we keep it to a, to this number, and that we don't get more people, and that we're not trying to like chase away people trying to sneak into an event. You know, like your mentality changes a lot. So totally just out of concern for safety. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you're like, okay, and then and then you're like walking around making sure that people are masked, and and it's a it's a whole different thing. You know, at the end it worked out, and and then and it was a success. Um, and the museum told us that it was. It was one of their most successful exhibitions that they've ever had there, and it, and then, and that's not an art museum. It's a, it's actually a natural history museum. Wow! So that's amazing. So well, I I think you're so finding that now with yeah. Well, 
I mean, you said you've done museum shows before, and you, obviously you're bringing so much art and culture to your local community there. Um, are you finding that the museums are starting to really become switched on to the subculture and are being a little bit more open-minded to your proposals? Yeah, no, I would say so, yes. Uh, at the same time, I also learned through doing different museum exhibitions that there's a lot of politics with the museums. Oftentimes, it's hard being, you're still seen as an outsider in, in a lot of ways, especially if the museum has their own curatorial team. But at the same time, they're starting to sort of see the value and the impact that this genre of art has on art history and the history of mankind. And I think that's why we were then accepted at a natural history museum versus the art museum. And, but which also changed the way that we would install and set up the exhibition because, because it was in a natural history museum, education became a larger factor. Like we couldn't just put up artwork and call it a day. There had to be an element where we discussed the history of graffiti and its impact on culture. And so it's good to sort of like put those mindsets into it. And what we did instead was bring on cultural advisors that would help us tell that story. Because I don't feel like I was the right person to do that. And so I brought in Crash, Mayor 139, and Slick to be our cultural advisors to tell the history of graffiti. And they were also all there in town, painting murals and creating work for the exhibition as well. Fantastic. I mean, those are three legends right there. So it definitely would have felt authentic with them guiding the curatorial selection. So... Yeah, that's great. What was the response from your community? Did they, were they completely, I mean, four months is a long time. You said the museum never saw numbers like that before. That's quite an achievement, I would say, not only just for the subculture, but, you know, for, for the museum itself. Has, I mean, you've been there now 10, 12 years doing powwow in Hawaii. Is that right? 10 years at the festival. And then if we count this exhibition, then 11 years. 11, 11 years. years yeah. Yeah. And how have you seen that grow and develop from the community's perspective? It's been, I think uh, oftentimes when you start a project, you have one goal in mind and it evolves over time. And it's, and it's key to keep doors open and be flexible enough and malleable enough to sort of change over time. And so, you know, in the early years, it w we just wanted to bring our friends together and do a group exhibit. But that was the first certain, intention? Yeah. Like your initial was like, intention was just to put on a fun show? Yeah. And I think <laughs> yeah. and I think I think that's always like the intention for like a lot of curators or galleries. Like, you know, I just want to put on like a nice show, like a like a cool show. Like especially early on. Like I was young when I first started all of this. And I was like, you know, that's like a, you know it'd be great to bring our friends together and and paint. Um, and find a reason to get them to Hawaii. Um, but one thing to discuss about about Hawaii is that we don't have the largest arts community. It's much smaller than other cities, but it's filled with really talented individuals. But we don't have a lot of galleries supporting or creating platforms for these artists. Right. We only have like a handful to this day. And so, you know, when we started doing the project, it ended up having a larger impact because no one no one else was doing it. And no one else definitely no one was, was trying to paint murals or do a mural festival of any sort. And so, you know, our sort of missions changed over time. It became about community beautification because we were working in a, in a neighborhood that was oftentimes forgotten. And we realized that painting murals could shift the way that people viewed that community 
um, it would one, it would make it more colorful and lively just for the fact that there was murals on the wall. Two, it would create more foot traffic because people would try to find these murals. And then, you know, as they were looking for murals and looking for art on the streets, they would then discover local businesses and local restaurants and partake in those. And as business increased with them, then maybe other businesses would also open there too. And more artists would also move into that community. So that happened. Uh, and over the past decade, the neighborhood that was once just a small, sleepy community grew and changed. And, and now it's, it's a popular district. Wow. It's definitely changed a lot over the years. And, and now we do it in like 20 cities around the world now. So, so we've seen that same change and, that, and those same impacts happening uh, globally. You know, it's really amazing to have watched how Pow Wow has basically taken over the world. How, how were you able to do that, Jasper? How were you able to physically be in all of those cities and engage with the local com community on that level to create the change that you have done? Um, can you kind of walk through how you were able to do that? Because I can't imagine figuring out how to do that. <laughs> Did you work with people on the ground? We have like different teams that are local, um, different directors and different teams everywhere. So I grew up, I grew up in Hawaii uh, and I left for college in, in the Bay Area, in San Francisco. I went to art college there. And after I graduated, I think for most students that graduate with a, with a BFA, with a Bachelor of Fine Arts, they're not sure what to do with it. I decided that I was really curious, well, I was really curious about manufacturing, about how to get an idea into physical form. Because going to art college, they teach you about technical skills and conceptual thinking, but oftentimes they don't talk to you about the business side of art and how you go about it, especially if you wanted to start your own, your own brand or your own business. Uh, trying to find ways to utilize your art in that way, commercially. And so I decided to move to Hong Kong because Hong Kong was the gateway to China. And China is one of the manufacturing capitals of the world. And so I moved there. And I lived in Hong Kong for about four years. And during that period, I tried reaching out to different manufacturers, to different just agents as well, to sort of see who could help me figure figure out or, or, or teach me about that about, about that process. Um, and that's why I, I talked to guys that would create product for everyone from 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 Ralph Lauren to to Steve Madden to Coach. But at the same time, I fell in love with showing my art in galleries while living in San Francisco. Uh, you know, this is back in like when I was living there was between like 02 and 06 around there. And so during this period, it wasn't no, actually, no, I was living in San Francisco between 01 and 07 or something. And so at that period, you know, social media wasn't wasn't as big of a thing out there. You didn't really have Instagram yet. And so the only way for a lot of young artists to share their work was through showing it at group shows or, or, or art galleries. You know, that's the, oftentimes being an artist is a very solitary pursuit. And the only time your work really gets validated oftentimes is is presenting it in those settings. So so I fell in love with that. And, then, and while in Hong Kong, I tried to be a part of the gallery scene and get my art shown in art galleries that were that were there. What I didn't realize was just the, the financial nature mm. of Hong Kong and that everything there has to be an investment and it has to have a reason, it has to make money. Um, when I was growing up as a kid, I've been, and I'm Chinese, and this is very much a part of Chinese culture, but so much of your value is based on how much money you make. And even my grandmother would tell me that I would never meet someone or get a girlfriend if I wasn't, if I didn't have money. It's very much ingrained 
in our culture, unfortunately. And so when I took my work around to different galleries, uh, I kept getting rejected because they told me that I didn't have good potential to sell because I was the wrong type of Chinese. Wow. <laughs> and when I, when I say that, what I mean is at that time, mainland Chinese artists were a hot commodity. So if you were an artist from Beijing, from Shanghai, from Guangzhou, Shenzhen, etc., people were interested in collecting mainland Chinese artists. Um, but because I was American Chinese, there was a lot less interest. So it was less based on sort of if my work was good or if they liked it. It was more the fact that I wasn't mainland Chinese. And if I was, then maybe they would have shown me. My reaction to to the rejection was to start my own gallery. Because I also realized that a lot of galleries in Hong Kong also were not providing a platform for local Hong Kong artists. And so there was this restaurant that was abandoned for about a decade on the outskirts of the area where all the galleries were. Because in Hong Kong, everything is sort of centered around industries. Like there's a district that only sells appliances. There's another district that only sells textiles and another one that only sells electronics. And so there's a district that only has galleries. And so I was on the outskirts yeah. of that. And the district that I was in was more known for selling dried seafood. Dried seafood, and it's hard to explain what it is, but it's sort of, uh, they're kind of like, they're made of paper. They're like offerings for ancestors yeah. or for the recently deceased. So they, yeah. they'll, but it's like a, but they look like piñatas to a degree and you burn them. And they have everything from, from luxury sports cars to, to Louis Vuitton bags to mansions that you can burn and send to your ancestors so that they can live a fancy life in the afterlife, which goes back to like Qin Shi Huangdi and the terracotta soldiers and, and all that belief. But I was in that area. So it definitely wasn't sort of like the gallery area. Painted the walls white, added some doors and windows, and we had a gallery. And the very first exhibition there was the very first powwow in Hong Kong. And this was at Above Second. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Above Second. Yeah. yeah. And we named okay. it Above Second because it was Above Second Street because we felt like we needed to sort of name it after the location so people could find us because we were a bit <laughs> So that was the, you know, powwow, the first powwow, powwow exhibition then. Was it a group show? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it was a group show. And we didn't do any murals, but it was a group show. And But the way that we set up the show was in reaction to our experience in Hong Kong and my experience in Hong Kong. And so I didn't want it to be financially driven. Like I was like, I don't care if any work sells, um, but I would like to sort of share process. So it was key to turn the gallery into an open studio when we created the work and, and invite people to come check it out as we were doing it. Because uh, oftentimes I felt like the, the process leading up to the final work oftentimes is more interesting than the final work itself. You know, to sort of see the artist's struggles and, and the artist's wins as they sort of create work is oftentimes a very beautiful experience. I also wanted artists to to collaborate together. So we so brought in artists from from all over the world to participate. You know, this included Will Barris, um, Ouye from France, uh, Jahan, and also local artists and myself as well. And so we we did that and and, and we also ended up destroying some of the artwork at the end because I wanted to sort of like that hey, we're just gonna you know let let's experience um let's Let's go back to like when we created work for the fun of it and we didn't worry about trying to sell work. And so that became an important part of it. So, you know, so we, we did that and the show was a success and everyone loved it. And I then wanted to take it to other parts of the world and make it a traveling show. But I was then convinced by a friend back home in Hawaii to bring it home locally. And so I did. And I said, you know, there's there's no harm in trying to bring it to Hawaii. But I did have my doubts because I wasn't sure if anyone would care. 
Yeah. And yeah. that first year in Hawaii, which was 2011, I had a really hard time raising funds to make the ex to make the exhibition happen. I pretty much wanted to make the same exhibition happen that I did in Hong Kong. But most brands and companies that I reached out to felt that art shows and art exhibits weren't a good vehicle to promote their brand. And so they didn't see the point in sponsoring us in any way. So when that happened, I, w I was left with the options of either canceling, scaling it down, or just going for it. And I decided to just go for it. And I ended up paying for everything with my credit card. So all the flights, materials, paint, everything. Um, and we ended up doing the same show. But one thing that shifted and changed our direction was the fact that there was a wall in the parking lot of the warehouse where we were holding the show. And right. One, two, three clan, Sien and Clore was like, yeah, let's paint on this wall. I was like, yeah, we should. And it was difficult trying to convince the neighbor to let us paint on the wall because, you know, access was from the property that we were on. And then we also needed to get the neighbor, the neighbor to approve it because I told her that like, hey, look, it's a win-win for you. You know, it's a, you either get an amazing mural or you get a freshly painted wall because we'll, we'll paint it over if you don't like it. So, you know, either way, it's a win-win. She ended up loving the mural at the end. What we then realized and what done us through that was that um, doing murals was the way to go. Because one, with murals, you can you can share a process because you're doing it on the street. You're you're doing it in, in public view. It's public art. Uh, we can collaborate together and work together on large scale walls. And we also don't own the walls. So we can't sell the work that's on it. So the work at the end of the day belongs to the artist and belongs to the community. And and they can do what they want. Granted, it's not our property and it has to stay family friendly, but still there's a lot more creative freedom. And so Absolutely. Yeah. And so we wanted to do more murals. Um, and so we started chasing walls. We spent a lot of time talking to owners and, and, and property owners and business owners to try to get more walls. And with the following years, we did 12 murals. And in more recent years in Hawaii, we would do 100 murals with like 120 artists over a period of a week. And then we would do different events throughout the week, such as talks and exhibitions and block parties and concerts. And so it kind of grew into a larger scale festival that spanned a larger footprint. And that's when we started doing work globally, starting with Taiwan, because then we started meeting other people interested in bringing the same project that we were doing in Hawaii, and they wanted to bring it to their own hometown and beautify it and work with artists there. And so we started working one-on-one -on -one with different people that or just like-minded, passionate individuals that believe in the impact of art in their own communities. And so we continue pushing that. And now we do it in like 20 cities around the world now. That is so impressive to hear that backstory and just the consistency that you, you know, you've had all these years. So, I mean, you're talking about thousands of murals then that you guys have created under Pow Wow. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, a lot. I've, I've never actually counted all of them, but yeah, there's a lot of them. <laughs> Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So you just did an exhibition in a museum. I mean, they're still doing indoor shows, but do you feel still the, the murals are, are where your heart is at with Pow Wow? Is that, is that the driving force behind your vision? Is the public yeah, art? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, pu public art is still definitely the driving vision for the festival and the organization, definitely. Because um, in this year alone, uh, we, we did Worcester, Massachusetts, Cleveland, Ohio, Helsingborg, Sweden, Rotterdam, Netherlands, and we just finished a one in DC. And now we're moving into one in Long Beach, California, then Japan, Doha, Qatar, and San Jose, California, to finish up the year. So we're still doing a lot of festivals that are centered around murals and public art. Do you go to each one of these? I used to, but not yeah. now. Not that I'm like married with like two kids. It's 
it becomes very difficult to, to do that, to travel around. But I, I did fly to Cleveland this year to help out. Yeah. And I try to fly as many as possible to sort of assist and help in any way I can. And I mean, you must have really trusting relationships with the people that are leading it for you on the ground. How were those relationships formed quite organically to find other curators and project leaders? How did that happen? Either I reached out or they reached out to me. These days, it's more of the latter. And then we would meet in person oftentimes, or they would come to Hawaii or, or I'll, I'll meet them somewhere in the world. Um, and then we would discuss the projects and, and see if it's the right fit and, uh, and if, there, if we can even like make it happen and what resources are available and what we can and can't do. So yeah, you, know, it, you, you build bonds and relationships with these directors and these groups of people globally and they become like family. And, and we work together often and try to like provide platforms for artists and, and create public art projects. Um, and also at the same time, I try to fly them all to Hawaii every so often to get them all together. And because yeah. we've all have these sort of like shared experiences, because it's not so easy sort of putting together public art festivals, that we all kind of bond yeah. really quickly um, through sort of all the work that we've been, we've been doing over the years. Yeah, I think it's a, quite a unique mindset and set of skills to be able to work as a individual that's working as a curator or somebody that's, you know, being a project leader for a mural festival, because, you know, in reality, no universities really teach us how to do this job. And a lot of the stuff is self-taught and just through sheer motivation and the willingness to keep going, even when things just seem impossible. Um, so I'm sure you've met quite a unique tribe of people around the world people with yeah no mindset. absolutely yeah absolutely yeah it's a, yeah I, yeah if you're jumping into doing public art festivals and mural festivals like you really have to love it because one you don't make money doing it really yeah. because the the sheer cost of putting one on is so high considering flights and accommodations and you know the cost to rent lifts and materials etc i mean we do have sponsors and, and different supporters of our project but at the same time it still costs a lot and it takes a lot of time and you also end up being yelled at a lot too <laughs> because not <laughs> yeah. everyone's very much accepting of the work as you work in different communities it's, it's definitely easier to to do that when you're you know, doing work in a, in a gallery or in a museum because you're dealing with, you know, one property owner, one business owner, or if you own the gallery, right? But if you're doing public art festivals, then you're dealing with a multitude of, of owners and property owners and business owners and different people um, and different people within the community. And so there's a lot of things that could go wrong and a lot of things that people get angry about. Yeah. And it tends to go back to the director or the curator, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, so I get, yeah. I get yelled at a lot, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was speaking to Yasha Young actually recently on our podcast, and she said, yeah, oh, nice. anything, that, anything that goes wrong, it's your fault. <laughs> so I think we all resonate yeah. with that a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I get, I get blamed for, for things that, like, you know, like, like once I got blamed for public urination, and I'm like, I, people were peeing in that alleyway way before we were around oh you know God. i don't know it's not like we started working here and people were like oh i'm gonna pee here now you know it's like we're not the cause of that there used oh to be a uh, a group of seniors that that like hated me um and they would go around trying to find me just to berate me and they were not like anti like street art or anti-graffiti or anti or festival or anything it was they were they were anti specifically me and they would try to just find me just to yell at me and so then people <laughs> knew that they would do that 
And that's when they'll tell me, oh, don't don't go there because they're over there right now. Like they're they're trying to find you. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's a little gang, a senior citizen gang after Jasper Wong. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They saw me as um as destroying the neighborhood. Yeah. I wonder how they feel now that the neighborhood is completely transformed, as you were saying, and for the better. And businesses are there, and people are. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Flourishing. They've been there. They've been they've been disbanded since then. They don't try to find me anymore. Right, right. Well, so you know, change. Yeah. Some people don't like change. It's hard to adapt to. You know, it takes yeah, no, it takes sometimes some a, a moment for people to realize that actually it looks the walls do look prettier when they have paint on them and they're not just gray. Uh, I think it's the it's the it stigma oftentimes when you pull out a spray paint a, a spray can yeah. and the stigma that surrounds the usage of that tool and they immediately think oh they're gonna go tag everything and they're gonna yeah. vandalize on everything um, and they don't realize the beauty that can come from a spray. A spray can, and and yeah. they, and they just kind of just think about one thing in particular. I mean, I love tags myself personally. I think it's beautiful. It's like you know, it's a form of calligraphy. But that's all they think about oftentimes when they see a spray can, and so they, they don't think that you can you can also paint a large mural with, with that same tool. And they and they get afraid of it. Yeah, and they think that course. we're going to destroy I mean, everything. I, I think because it's oftentimes tied to vandalism. Uh, absolutely, and it's interesting that that you know as much as you've done for public art and you know all the projects you've run globally that stigma you find is it still there with certain individuals even though yeah, you have absolutely. so many wow i wonder when that will go away i wonder how many yeah, more I mean, murals it, we need to it do depends. until that <laughs> i think i think also depends on on where in the world you're doing the work because we've noticed that like people view the work differently depending on where i mean there's a lot of like sort of cultural divides and we see that more often because We've done tons of work around the world and, so, and sort of having to be respectful to cultures within those regions, but also the shock of us doing work, the culture shock of us doing work in those communities as well. And, and we've had some interesting experiences because of it. Uh, you know, for example, like one, we did a project many years ago in Taipei, Taiwan, and we painted a bunch of murals on an abandoned mall in a district called Ximen. And uh, one of the guys, well, Kamea, who's my partner and co-lead director for for the project, he wanted to paint a portrait. And he decided to paint a portrait of my wife. And so he painted a portrait of my wife on, on one of the walls. But that portrait stirred up a ton of controversy. What happened was, one, when you're in Taiwan, the people there are less interested in sort of the artist and then painting a mural. And they're more interested in why he painted a portrait of this person. Ah. And okay. it's like, what is the importance of this person and why was she painted? Yeah, what and does she signify? What's the reason? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And another thing is that because it was on an abandoned mall and it was just a portrait of just her head her, or just her, her bust area, they, they immediately thought, had they made the assumption that it was a portrait of the ghost that haunts that mall. Okay. And so the news came and they would film it and they will put the headline in Chinese, but it literally read like flying horror head, something along those lines, flying a head of horror. And it's funny because it was like my wife, you know, that was, it was a portrait of her. <laughs> and neighbors complained because then news spread of him painting the ghost. And they would interview neighbors saying that they're, they couldn't sleep at night because they could see the flying horror head, the flying head of horror from their from their window. 
Oh my gosh. Okay. So a complete other story was created around something. Yeah. From the yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, sometimes you're like, you hit in these moments where you're like, oh, that's not. And then we would try to go on the news and tell them like, hey, it's not, it's not a portrait of the ghost. Here's pictures. You know, here's pictures of my wife. She's an actual person, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know? And, and so, you know, sometimes you're like going back, looking back at it um, in hindsight, it's like, oh, maybe we should have thought about painting someone more well-known so that they wouldn't accidentally think, create their own story regarding it. Yeah, yeah. You know, more so than like painting a portrait of someone. Because in, in other parts, like like in America, like you can just paint portraits. People are like, oh, it's a beautiful portrait of a, of a person, you know, like no one's going to like create something around it or a story around it. That's less of an issue. Uh, but in other cities, it's like, how would this be interpreted? And it's something to sort of be mindful of. Well, yeah, I think it's actually one of the responsibilities for, for individuals that are working in public art, in the public art sector specifically, is to be mindful of the art and where it's going to live, you know? And I think that's one of the conversations I have a lot with people is, you know, some public artworks don't have anything to do with the community. They don't seem to fit in. And, and it is, you know, some people are just doing stuff that might not be very considered or, and that's, I think that's part of our job. And of course, course, you never know what the reaction's going to be until it's up. But I, I'm always quite mindful of that. I feel like it's quite a big responsibility putting work in the public space because you are directly having an impact on so many people's day-to-day -day lives that you might never meet. Yeah, Just, exactly. Yeah, because then they're the ones that end up living with it. Um, yeah, it's part of their landscape. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's why it's always important for us whenever we do do festivals globally that half our roster is local so that we are also engaging with the community and the local community of artists that are there. And they can also help guide us culturally as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a really smart strategy because they're going to know better, aren't they, than, than anyone else. Absolutely. Yeah. I think yeah. with that one in, in Shimen, they told us, you guys have free reign, do whatever you want because it's an abandoned mall. But yes, the mall itself is abandoned, but the people that live next to it, there's like those buildings are still full of people. And the reason why we chose my wife is because, you know, she's Chinese and we felt, well, we're in Taiwan. I mean, she's not Taiwanese. So, you know, it was just sort of like, oh, it'd just be a beautiful portrait that we can paint and no one will be offended. But yeah. They found a way to be offended by it. And, well, they made it. I think it's quite interesting, about. the story they've made yeah. up about it. I think that's amazing yeah. as well. It just shows you your human imagination, how far it can go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. And it, it, it was even funnier that, like, that, like, the news came and decided to do a report. They they did a whole, like, like my friend, like, video, like, the evening news about it. <laughs> And my friend and my friend sent sent like the worst photos of of, of my wife afterwards, and then, and then they put it on the news too. <laughs> We're like, wow. does nothing happen in Taiwan where like this is like on the evening news? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so how do you? I mean, it sounds like your plate is full. How are you managing? Are you still doing your artist career? It sounds seems like you're still very active as an artist. So it seems what you're doing. You're an artist. You're doing curation. You're doing direction. You're wrapping up paintings to ship back. I mean, is there kind of a balance with all of those things to so that you can still focus on your artistic practice? Or how do you kind of manage all of it emotionally, mentally, physically? <laughs> I don't know. I think I think I'm still trying to figure that out myself. <laughs> I think I think oftentimes <laughs> it's me just trying to like not stress myself out and just taking everything one step at a time I'm trying to like plan out my days in that regard you know like don't set insane deadlines because oftentimes i feel like i will set crazy deadlines for myself like i need to get this all done today and it might not be realistic to do so uh so yeah. you know and at the same time yeah it's like you know when you have a family it's also a lot a lot different too because then you also have to consider th their schedule and oftentimes that may take up a lot of your time and you might be working in the evenings um trying to get things trying to meet meet deadlines or 
or finished projects. Uh, I think at the same time with my own work, I've been lucky in the respect that these days I've been also hired for my own work and and they want what I do um, to be part of different campaigns. And so that's been, that's been good where I'm still doing my own work. And also it's still sort of guaranteed uh, payment because I do have to consider our expenses as a family and having to cover costs, having two kids and, and my wife. So it's, yeah, um, the reality. it's definitely a lot of work. Yeah. And so it's, I'm oftentimes, you know, yesterday my wife asked me to sort of like list all my ongoing projects and I gave her a list and she was like, Oh, are you okay? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm fine. Um, but you know, just take it one step at a time. It'll get, it'll get all sorted and worked out at the end. Yeah, like even with yeah. stuff I'm shipping back, I'm like, I'm not gonna try to ship it all at one time. That would also overwhelm the, the delivery companies. Like if I showed up with like all this stuff, I'm like, I need to send all this stuff to all these places, you know? I was like, I'll do maybe three or four a day, you know? And then I'll get it done. So step by step. Yeah. Do you think COVID has taught you any lessons that you're taking on with your career moving forward? Yeah, I would say, you know, the thing that probably shifted me the most is how I viewed not only my own projects, but also our festival and our organization as a whole. And I think in a lot of ways I became more socially conscious over 2020. So what we've been doing is, and we've been sort of making this shift just across the board with, with our festivals, is trying to be more selective of the walls that we paint on and who they're for. Uh, we've done a few projects in the past that were focused on public housing and on schools. And we've done a lot of those in in different cities around the world. Uh, one in particular was in Kathmandu, Nepal, where we painted murals for a school for homeless children and orphans. And what they would do is they would convince or they would get kids through the doors by offering two hot meals a day. And once they came in, then it was an opportunity for them to teach them. But these schools are not the most inspiring places to be for young people, you know. Some of them don't have floors, you know, it's uh, the blank walls, every exterior, interior wall, classrooms in the ceilings, the cafeteria, everything. We created like like workshops and, and got shoes donated, et cetera. And it was really meaningful, not only to us, but for all the artists involved as well. Um, and we started also doing work in public housing. And one in particular was in Worcester, Massachusetts, where during the project, a mother of two daughters came up to us and she told us that her older daughter was always embarrassed about telling people where she was from because people would judge her because she lived in public housing. And she told us that her younger daughter told someone where she lived and they asked her if that's where all the murals were. And <laughs> that like small shift in wow. perception gave yes. her pride in where she lived and it meant everything to her mom. And we want to do more work like that because we know that there are a lot of communities around the world that are underserved, especially public housing communities. So, you know, we did more public housing murals this year in Worcester, Massachusetts. Actually, the, the mayor of that city loves us so much that whenever we do projects, he gives keys to the city to all the artists that participate. I said, thank you for giving back to those communities. And I've been also talking to the public housing authorities here locally in Hawaii in hopes of sort of doing more of that work locally in Hawaii as well. So, you know, outside of Kaka'ako, we're looking at like underserved communities like Kalihi. And I, and I also started teaching in community centers that cater to underserved communities. And so I taught art classes this past summer at a community center instead of, and I, and I turned down a, a teaching gig at a private school so I could teach there instead. So I'm hoping to do more work that's in line with that. You know, uh, you know, if we're trying to do projects globally, like maybe we're looking at 
these walls. We're like saying, hey, you know, who does this mural benefit? What does this building do for this community? Um, in Cleveland, we did a lot of walls in a red line district and we did murals for the ACLU. So we're trying to sort of shift in that regard. And I think that shift happened. I mean, we were doing it before, but it happened even more so because of 2020. Yeah. Well, I think with case studies like that, you know, seeing the impact, the real impact that you can have on a community and individuals' lives through something as some people might seem as insignificant as some paint on a wall. But it does show, you know, the incredible power that, you know, the work that you do does have. And I'm sure it continues to keep you motivated and inspired, you know, even through the hardships. Like those little stories are just amazing. Amazing. You can't buy that experience. You can't buy that change in a community that really impacts somebody's life like that. So that's phenomenal. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Oh, yeah, no problem. Amazing, Jasper. It's been fun. It's been so great to speak to you. Um, I'm going to let you go shortly. I just have one question. Last question to end our chat is, you know, to all the young curators that are listening, we get a lot of kind of young curators joining our podcast, people that are in, wanting to understand how they can make it, young artists, um, you know, trying to get their grips on this big thing thing called the art market um, that can be quite intimidating to a lot of people to, to enter this movement. What were kind of maybe two or three takeaways so far that you've learned from your career or how to keep people, the messages to keep people inspired? How, what have you done to keep yourself moving forward even when you felt like all the odds were against you? Do you have any uh, key pointers for them? Yeah, to sort of find a different way to measure success and not in the maybe the traditional ways that that you're taught it to find like what you're doing and how you're benefiting communities and also how you're benefiting your peers and, and artists that you work with. And so at the end, like no matter how difficult it is, it's, it's worth it. It's a value and you're making an impact. And it's often hard to sort of see past that, especially when you might get a lot of like hate messages and, and people trying to put you down through that process, but you have to kind of also believe in yourself at the same time and keep pushing forward. Yeah. Because sometimes the negativity feels like it's much louder than the positivity than the and the admiration, but it's worth doing. Yeah, to keep to keep pushing on. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well thank that's that's a beautiful message of advice and you know, to stay consistent to keep focused and just, you know, keep going. I think that's always kind of need to remind ourselves of that. There is a lot of negativity in the world, especially right now. And we just need to kind of stay positive and and keep working towards towards our passion and our vision, you know, because what you've done, Jasper, for, for not only the subculture, but also just for communities around the world is phenomenal. And I hope that our listeners are extremely inspired as I am. And it's been an absolute honor and privilege to speak to you today. So thank you so much for your time. I really wish you all the best with everything that you have on your plate right now, which I'm sure is a lot. And I wish you a lot of luck with packing and shipping all that artwork. <laughs> Because that doesn't sound yeah, like a you. fun job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never is. <laughs> well, thank you, Jasper. Um, I'm going to no, leave it you. there. I hope you have a wonderful day. And um, we'll you catch too. you again here for at Curators of Culture. Take care. You too. Thank you so much. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. If you have enjoyed our discussion, show your support by following us on Instagram at monikerartfair.com. Or if you can spare a moment, please leave a five-star review or positive rating. Thank you so much for joining us. See you next time here at Curators of Culture.